When I was a teenager, I was not always the most responsible person, and uh, one of the ways that that was demonstrated was I wasn't real on time with my college applications, and so uh, the school that I really wanted to go to in Florida, I actually got my application in after the deadline, and so I was kind of, um, I don't even know what the term is, I get kind of a probationary acceptance, but I wasn't going to get any financial aid from them because just the small problem of sending it in too late, which didn't seem like a big deal to me. So I said, well, fine, if that's the way you're going to be school, I'm not going to you. I'm just going to take a year off and go to Africa. And my parents credit them. They didn't freak out. Um, I was kind of a strong-willed teenager, too. And so uh, I worked for a while, actually got a job, worked for a few months, saved up some money, and then I went to Africa. I went to this orphanage over there. Didn't, didn't know anybody, really. I, I kind of knew one missionary a little bit, um, but didn't know anybody else. I went over there, and I found out that church, many things are different in Africa, but church services are very different in Africa. Uh, the first thing was, uh, before the actual service, which starts at about 9 o'clock, before the service, they have a two-hour prayer meeting that I was required to go to as a missionary. And so at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, I had to like drag myself over to this prayer service. And I like prayer, you know. And so we get there, and I'm like, dear Jesus, help this to be a really good church service. Amen. And everybody else is still praying, and they're praying, and they're praying, and they pray for two hours. They're crying, and people are on their knees, and hands are in the air. And I'm like, this is cool, but, you know, I'm, can we go get some coffee or something? You know, I'm hungry. So we do that for two hours. Then, after two hours, now it's time for the real church service to start at 9 o'clock. So we go into the, to the building, and in Africa, it's, it's hot, and buildings are made from mud. And so we go in there, it's hot, and now the music starts. And it's not quite what we're used to here, 15, 20-minute worship sets. They go for a good hour at least, maybe two hours if they're really into it. And it's not like kind of a polite singing, like they're dancing, and they've got their hands on the air. And, you know, people in Africa, they're not wealthy for sure, but they, they wear their very best, whatever they can get. And so guys, if you can find a suit, you're wearing it to church. And so guys are dressed. Women have these capolanas, which are a little, they're, they're kind of airy dresses. So they're probably more comfortable for the guys. They're sweating away, the suit coats on, dancing for two hours. So finally, after two hours, it's 11 o'clock now. I'm getting hungry. The pastor comes up. I'm like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm used to this 20, 30-minute sermon maybe. No, pastors, they're ch- they go for a good two hours in Africa, minimum. And they might go for three if they're really feeling the, feeling the spirit. And so, uh, which is impressive because for me, 30 minutes is a long time to preach. So they're, they're chugging along, good two, three-hour service. Finally, between one to two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm starving. We finally finish, and now I get to eat a little bit. We all eat together, big communal lunch. And then I'm like, okay, time for people to go home. But they don't go home. They just take naps, right? Everybody's together. People are laying on church benches taking naps. Five o'clock, we do it all over again. (laughs) Very different from here. Uh, Another thing that was very different in these church services was it was very typical. Almost every week, you'd have people, you were always having visitors coming and guests, guests coming. And it was very typical for somebody to begin to act very strangely. Uh... Strange voices, I saw people slithering, literally slithering on the floor. Um, It's very weird when a petite woman begins to yell loudly in a gruff male voice. 
Uh, and then people would come around them and pray for them, and they'd be cursing God and, and yelling, and then they'd be, people would be praying for them, and they'd start gagging and doing dry heaves, and then eventually they would have peace. Now, I don't know the background of these people. I, we're, we're in Portuguese, you know, and so I didn't know the language real well. I couldn't interview them. Maybe some of these people are schizophrenic. Who knows? I'm certainly not against Christian counseling and psychiatry, but I'm also convinced from God's Word and from numerous other experiences that I've had like that, not just in Africa, but even here in the States, that demons are real and that they harm people. Last week I was reading Charles Taylor, a well-respected Christian philosopher, and he was describing human religious beliefs over Um, over human history. And he said that not only has there always been a widespread belief in a good creator and good spirits, there's also been a widespread belief in the existence of malevolent spirits with supernatural power to harm. And both of these beliefs are virtually universal across human culture and experience. And while most people have always recognized that we owe gratitude and worship and obedience to our creator, The primary human motive in religion is blessing and protection. The idea for people, up until about 200 years ago, the idea of living without religion was synonymous with living defenseless in a world filled with supernatural enemies. And since most cultures have felt disconnected from the supreme God, rather than seek Him out, they've often turned to lesser spirits who they believed could bless them and protect them from evil spirits. And that may sound strange to us, but it's important to realize that people throughout history have believed almost universally in supernatural spirits that are inclined towards harming humans. And that was certainly the view of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus said that he has come to set the prisoners free, and he trained his disciples to preach the good news, to heal the sick, and to cast out evil spirits. For Jesus, really, really seeing people meant understanding their deepest needs. And that included freedom from the oppression of demons. And so today we're going to look at a story where that need is very clearly on display. It's in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. As you turn there, let me just say a few other quick things here. Uh, When I preach a message that involves Satan or demons, I generally see three kinds of responses. The first response is fear. Most of us don't enjoy being reminded of the existence of demons, and if, you, if you're a Christian who believes the Bible, you believe they're real, and so you expect that once in a while you're going to have to hear about them, but you're generally glad when the sermon's over and you get to go back on the plaza, life returns to normal, you get to talk with your friends about nice things, and if you're in that camp, I think your fear is understandable, I get it, but I also want to remind you first that Christians don't need to fear demons, uh, if you have the Spirit of Christ in you, but also becoming a Christian is like enlisting in the military during wartime. You can expect a few battles. You have some real enemies. You're going to face them whether you're prepared or not, so you might as well prepare. The second response I get from people when I preach these sermons is curiosity, 
right? For some people, hearing stories about demons is kind of like hearing ghost stories. Like it's, it's scary, but it's also exciting. And so you're wishing that I would have told more stories about experiences I've had with demons. And so people like this will often come up to me afterward and they'll ask me lots of questions like, where do demons come from? How many are they? How powerful are they? Do they have like a ranking or a hierarchy? Uh, what do they look like? Do they wear their tight little pants and the, you know, the, the, the pitchforks and stuff? The Bible does touch on a few of these issues, but it doesn't tell us everything. It just tells us what, what we need to know. And this is one of their, those sermons where I can't, there's no way I could cover the entire topic thoroughly. And so I'd be happy to talk with you afterward if you have questions. But we also need to be careful not to develop an unhealthy curiosity about the demonic realm. Paul tells us to focus our minds on what is good and pure and holy. And so on one hand, we don't want to give Satan too much credit and start seeing demons behind every rock and every misfortune that we experience. If you lost your keys this morning, it probably wasn't because a demon hid them somewhere. And no matter what happens, God is ultimately sovereign. He's in control over your circumstances ultimately, not Satan. But on the other hand, Paul tells us that we need to be aware of Satan's schemes and to use the armor of God like we're instructed to in Scripture. And if we don't, we're going to make very little progress in our faith and we're going to be frequently confused and discouraged. And then third, the last response I sometimes get is skepticism, even from Christians. Some people will say, well, Jesus and the apostles, they were men of their times. They believed that mental illness was caused by demons, but now we know it's caused by biological factors. But the verse that really blows up that theory is Matthew 4, 24, where it literally says this. It says, people brought to Jesus all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demonized, those touched by the moon, the paralyzed, and he healed them. That phrase, those touched by the moon, was a Greek expression referring to people who were insane. People who had a biologically caused mental illness. Ancient people did not just simplistically label every mental illness as demonic. They understood that some had biological causes, but they also recognized that there was good evidence that some illnesses were not purely biological. And so with that in mind, let's jump into our passage today, Matthew or Mark, excuse me, chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1. They went across the lake, that's Jesus and his disciples, and it's the, the Sea of Galilee. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he had tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones." When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So a couple quick things. Before we keep going here, uh, the Gerasenes was an area 
on the Sea of Galilee is a big area. So there are, there are towns, most of the towns along the Sea of Galilee are Jewish, but the Gerasenes is a region that's primarily Gentile. Uh, there were quite a few Gentiles living in northern Israel at this time, and so this is a primary, primarily Gentile area. And it says this man, ha- uh, Jesus encountered a man with an evil spirit. Later, as we continue reading, this, this translation is going to say that he is demon-possessed. Now that's, I think, an unfortunate translation. It came in with the King James Version. I don't think it's the most helpful. The Greek word here literally says he is demonized. Demonized. To be demonized means you are influenced by a demon. And it's, there's a spectrum here. On one hand, it could be a fairly, fairly tame influence. It could be um, what we might call intense temptation or kind of... Um, habitual thought patterns that we have trouble breaking free of. They have some sort of a demonic origin. But on the, on the other spectrum, it could be very intense influence to the point where you don't have a lot of control over yourself. Some, you often find yourself doing things that are uh, heavily, heavily influenced by a demon. And that was certainly where this man was. But I still don't like the term possession because it implies like Satan is like possesses him. But clearly this man still has some free will. He still has his, it says that he came, he ran to Jesus. I don't think a demon would cause this man to to run to Jesus. So I think this man still has some control over his will. I, I just don't think that people ever get to the point in this life where they're fully controlled, fully possessed, so to speak, by a demon. Clearly this man has some control. And so he comes to Jesus and he's been living in the, in the tombs. Tombs are made from little caves along the shore there. So he's been living in these little caves. Uh, and he comes to Jesus. And he says, the demon says through him, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Demons have excellent theology. In fact, when you read the Gospels, the, the, the persons, the beings who get Jesus the from the very beginning are the demons. Jesus' own disciples, the apostles, don't even fully understand who he is until after his resurrection. But man, the demons get it. They got some really good theology. They get the Trinity far before anyone else understood it. They understood it, and yet they're not saved. I think there's a little warning here for us. Be real careful about assuming that because you have a great grasp of theology that you are an awesome Christian. Uh, Correct theological beliefs are good. They're important. Peter tells us to grow up, to mature in our faith. I would say that they're necessary to a certain extent to be a Christian, but they're not sufficient because demons have excellent theology. They have very good beliefs, but they're not saved. They haven't surrendered their lives to Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so just be wary of that. Is it good to have great theology? Is it good to understand a lot of things? Yes, but is that enough? No. You've got to surrender your life to Christ. And he says, uh, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man. Uh, then later he begs, it says he begs Jesus not to send him out of the area. If you read the parallel stories in Matthew, the demons beg Jesus not to send them into the abyss. And in Luke, they beg Jesus not to send them into hell. So the idea here is they don't want to be sent out of this human region, this human realm, this physical, earthly realm. They don't want to be sent out of that and sent into the abyss, sent into hell. And they said, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? So demons get that there will be a day of judgment, a day of accountability. And demons don't want to go to hell any more than humans do. Right? A lot of times we have this image of demons like dancing around in hell, poking people with pitchforks. They don't like hell either. They don't want to be there either. 
And so these demons are begging Jesus, don't send us out of the area. Don't send us into hell before the appointed time. You know, give us a break here, Jesus. And so Jesus says, what is your name? Which is kind of strange, right? Like, why would you ask a demon its name? Like, what's your name? He's like, oh, I'm Bob. What's your name, right? No, that's, that's not what Jesus is after here. In the ancient world, names correspond to function. In other words, so Jesus is basically saying, what are you doing to this man? What do you do to this man? As I've been in experiences where I've prayed with other people, not just myself, but others, we've prayed for somebody who seems to have some demonic influence. I've had demons say, I'm a spirit of lust or spirit of whatever. And so that's why, what I think Jesus is after here. But this one answers, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion implies thousands. The Roman legions had 6,000 soldiers, so there's thousands of them. So he's, this demon is saying, look, there's too many of us for us to tell you what we do to this man. It would take us, you know, there's thousands of us in here. And he begged Jesus again not to send him out of the area. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The pigs, not the pigs, the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been demonized by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demonized man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I'll pause there. When I read Bible stories to my kids, uh, I've read this story to them. We read a story every night before bed. And when I read this story, the, the part of the whole story that bothers them the most is the poor pigs. Why did Jesus kill the pigs? And they're thinking of Wilbur from Charlotte's Web, and it's not fair. And I don't know exactly why Jesus allowed these demons to kill the pigs. Um, one possibility that seems probable is that this is still within the nation of Israel, the boundaries of the country of Israel. And God forbid the Israelites to have pigs, to eat pork. And so even though these are Gentiles, they're still not, they should not. According to the law of Moses, they should not have pigs in the nation of Israel, in the boundaries of Israel. So that could be part of the reason Jesus allows this. But I don't really know a full answer to that. I think a bigger question is, why does Jesus have mercy on these demons? Why does he allow them to stay in this earthly region and not send them to hell? I don't know the answer for that. If somebody wants to volunteer that later, you're certainly welcome to. I don't know. Jesus allows them, though, to stay here until the day of judgment. And then the the Gentiles, these people from the town, come and they beg Jesus to leave, which seems a little strange as well. Uh, But it's helpful to understand these Gentiles don't have Jewish beliefs. They don't believe, they don't know about the Jewish God. And so for them, Jesus seems like an evil magician, an evil shaman, somebody who has power over evil spirits and who then sends these evil spirits to do things for him and to harm people. And so Jesus sends the evil spirits out of this man, sends them into the pigs. And so, of course, that's going to hurt the local economy when you lose 2,000 pigs. And so the people are like, this is an evil magician, a shaman. And they say, get out of here, please, please leave us. They're afraid of him, and they beg him then to leave. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demonized begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family 
And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, the 12 cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Why doesn't Jesus allow this man to follow him? There's a lot of questions in this passage. I think probably because at this point, Jesus' ministry is still primarily focused on Jews. And it's within, uh, within Galilee and also down in Judea around Jerusalem. And so he, I'm sure Jesus knows that if this man follows him literally, he's not going to have a very effective ministry to Jews because he's a Gentile man. And so Jesus knows that this man will be more effective by staying in his home, staying in his community, and telling the Gentiles there about Jesus and how he delivered him. And so as we jump into our application section, our first application point here is that sometimes following Jesus means staying put. Sometimes following means staying. When we preach sermons on following Jesus and on being radical in our commitment to Jesus, the the natural questions that come up are, okay, where is God leading me? What is God leading me to do? Where is he leading me to go? And the implication is to really follow Jesus, I need to do something new or something different. But maybe Jesus doesn't want you to try to follow him somewhere else. And we shouldn't jump to that conclusion as an excuse for laziness. We shouldn't be like, oh Jesus, where do you want me to go? Oh, you want me to stay here and continue just hanging out and watching TV every day? Awesome. Praise God. I'm really good at video games. I'm just going to work harder. No, we, don't want to, we, we, want to be, we want to seek to be surrendered to Jesus' will in our lives and do what he calls us to do, but sometimes he calls us to stay. And that can be hard, actually. When you're really surrendered to Jesus and you're like, Lord, I want to go anywhere, lead me anywhere, and, and you see him leading people other places and leading them into new ministries, and you're just called to stay where you are and serve in your current community and your current circumstances, that can be hard. But sometimes that's what it means to follow Jesus to stay where you are, because that's where he's put you, and he wants you there. Second application point here, we have real demonic enemies. Satan and demons can be seen throughout Scripture, though the way they're portrayed in the Old Testament sometimes is a little hard for us to recognize. Uh, In Genesis, we all know Eve is tempted by the serpent. The serpent has traditionally been interpreted as Satan, Now, you may question that, and you may say, why should I assume that the serpent is Satan? Maybe it's just, I don't know, a serpent, you know, who can talk for some reason, you know. Uh, It's a little odd. The story's a little bit odd. But when you understand the historical background of the beliefs in the, the ancient Near East at that time when Moses was writing it, the myths about the gods uh, in these ancient Babylonian myths about the gods, bef- when the gods were trying to create the world, they were battling against this evil being called Leviathan. It was a being of chaos and darkness and evil. And the primary form that that being took was that of a serpent. And so the gods and the serpent are battling, and finally the gods are able to kind of push the serpent back and create the world. And so when you have that kind of understanding, and then you read Genesis, I think a couple things stand out. One, this serpent is not fighting God. It's not God versus the serpent. God is way more powerful than the serpent. They're not, they're not on the same level. The only way that the serpent can, the only beings the serpent can fight are humans. And he tempts humans and causes them to sin. And then throughout Israelite history, we see the Israelites constantly being drawn toward idolatry, and God constantly forbids it. And, and 
to us, it's like, well, what's the big deal with, you know, why, did, why were people obsessed with these little statues, right? I mean, I have like some little figurines in my office of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Like, what's the big deal about that? Well, if you understand the background here, these figurines were not toys. They represented spirits, spirits that people believed existed and had power. Paul talks about this in Corinthians. He says idols represent demons, And so the Israelites were being pulled towards worshiping, uh, one was that serpent. The Canaanites actually worshiped that serpent being. Also, Baal was a prominent idol that the Israelites were being tempted to worship. It was a god of of fertility, promiscuity. His mistress, Ashtoreth, she was an evil chick, man. She She was the goddess of war. She was mean. She killed people. She loved bloodshed. Um, Molech was another god, another idol that they were drawn to. The word uh, Molech, our, our word molestation comes from Molech. Molech really loved to hurt little kids, and so he would, he would require parents to sacrifice their children. He had child uh, prostitution in his temple. Evil, evil spirits. And so when you understand that background, you get it. Like, why does God hate idolatry? Why did he get angry when the Israelites went over and worshipped these idols? You begin to understand they're worshipping demons. Then after the exile from Babylon, Israelites didn't worship idols anymore for the most part, but in Job and Daniel and Zechariah, you continue to see how Satan is opposing God's people. Then in the New Testament, the first mention of Satan, he comes and he um, tempts Jesus. Jesus is fasting and Satan says, hey, um, if you'll just bow the knee to me, I can, I can give you a little shortcut here. You don't need to actually die on a cross. Just bow your knee and I'll give you authority over the world for it's been given to me. Now, it hasn't actually been given to him, but through our sin, we relinquished our authority, our stewardship over God's earth. And now the Bible says in the New Testament that the whole world is under the influence of the evil one who has blinded the eyes of sinful humans, of unbelievers to the gospel. And even Christians, it says, can be influenced by demons. If we don't put on the armor of God, that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. If we don't put that on, we're susceptible to arrows of temptation, discouragement, doubt, and fear. If we let the sun go down on our anger, our wounds will get infected with bitterness, hatred, and unforgiveness that have a demonic component to that. If you get a cut, a physical wound, a physical cut, it's not your fault that you got wounded. If somebody else did that to you, it's their fault. But you better treat that thing. You don't just say, well, I'm cut. It's not my fault. I'm just going to let it go. You better treat that. (laughs) You better not let that linger. Otherwise, it's going to get infected. It's the same thing spiritually. And then Paul also says, if we have areas of unrepentant, unrepentant, habitual sin, we give the enemy a foothold in our lives, an area to influence us. Jesus, right before the cross, he said, look, the evil one's coming, but he has no, he has no hold in me. No hold in me. In other words, he's saying, Satan doesn't have anywhere to grab onto me. I'm allowing myself to die on a cross, but it's not because Satan has any control over me. There's no place for him to grab into me. I have no sin in my life. And so when we have areas of unrepentant sin where we haven't allowed the blood of Jesus to cleanse and to forgive us, we have areas of habitual sin, we become open to demonic influence, demonic footholds. Third point, only Jesus can free people. Only Jesus. We have real demonic enemies who we have all underestimated. We tend to think if we just tried harder, we could be more successful in ministry. We could grow more. We could lead more people to Christ, which ironically is why we have so little success 
in what we do in ministry. It says here, this demonized man, that no one was strong enough to bind him. No one. If you were there, you couldn't have bound him. To really see people far from Christ, we must recognize a demonic component in their unbelief. We must recognize that their spiritual oppression is from Satan, who has blinded them. And we must recognize our inability to free people on our own. Only Jesus has the power to free people. Only He can make blind people see physically and spiritually. As His disciples, we've been given the right to use His authority with two caveats. One, we actually have to have faith that He has power to do that. Sometimes people pray, but they don't got hardly any faith. Faith is simply confidence. Confidence that Jesus has the power. If you're a parent... Some of you aren't parents, some of you are, you'll understand. If you're a parent and you don't have much confidence in your power to like have the right to, to discipline your kids and to lead your kids and you're really insecure and you're like, uh, hey, little Joey, can you please clean up your room? Little Joey's not going to clean up his room because he can see you don't have much confidence in yourself. And so if you're trying to like pray for somebody, if there's any kind of demonic component you don't re- and you don't really believe that Jesus has power, those demons aren't going to listen to you. You have to have confidence that Jesus actually has power over evil spirits. And you have to persevere. You have to have a commitment to see the battle through to the end. There's a a story where Jesus and two of his disciples, three of his disciples are up on the mountain of transfiguration. And the rest of the disciples are down at the bottom. Jesus comes back. And in the meantime, these other disciples, this dad brings his son who has a demon. And the, the disciples try to pray for the demon. They can't cast it out. And so when Jesus comes down, the dad's like, hey, Jesus, help me. Your disciples couldn't do it. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. And I always thought that's strange. Like, why don't these demons have much confidence in Jesus? But then he goes on. If you read, he goes on and he says, this kind of spirit will only come out through prayer and fasting. And so what I think he's saying there and what I think happened was these, these disciples prayed for this boy. Nothing happened. And then they're like, well, didn't work this time oh well, we'll wait for Jesus to come. And he's like, you should have had more faith. You should have just kept praying. You should have kept fasting. You should have certainly trusted and had confidence in my power, but you should have continued to fight the battle until this demon was forced to leave. If you really want to see people far from Christ, we must recognize a demonic component in their unbelief. If you want to reach out and help bring people to Christ and really see them, then you have to be committed to fight for them in prayer. Yes, reach out, do things, do tangible things, invite them over to your home, share the gospel with them when it's appropriate, but you have to be praying for them, and you have to be committed to continue to pray for them, to persevere in praying for them, not just for a day, or for a week, or for a month, but as long as it takes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, I recognize it's a, it's a heavy topic to talk about demons, it's kind of scary, We'd rather focus on nice things. But Lord, we do know that we have enemies. We don't need to fear them. We can have great confidence in your power. But we also, that means that we need to be tapped into that power. We need to be focused on you. We need to be prayerful and aware of Satan's schemes. And I pray that we would be, Lord. That you would put that on our heart. Not that we'd be um, overly concerned about Satan, but that we would just be so focused on you that it would be natural to pray for those who are oppressed. And we'd have great confidence that if we knock and we seek, you will answer. We thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.